This morning's passage that we're going to jump into here in Luke 12, it's, it's actually part two to the sermon that Colin delivered last week. My family got up very quickly in the middle of the service right before he began preaching that, and we headed out real quickly to attend my niece's baptism by Pastor Rob Hamby at Mercy Presbyterian here in Richardson. But I was able to listen to Colin's sermon later. And last week, as he preached, it was about Jesus' parable concerning the rich man, the rich man who's so enthralled with his income and comfort that he decides to simply build the biggest barns possible to store his grain and to live life to the fullest. He had lost sight of what God calls true home. Because he liked the current state of his experience so much, he wanted to make it permanent. And our passage this morning begins with Jesus saying, Therefore, I tell you. Which means that Jesus hasn't put down the subject of the last passage. He's just getting started. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The one who left his home to step into our trash heap in order to make it our home again. And he promises to give us tastes of our true home, even while we wait for it, even while we feel homesick for it. And we find this good news in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. If you have your Bibles, it's also on page 6 of your bulletin. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. These things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Father, we come this morning 
invited to rejoice, enabled to rejoice by your Spirit. And just as we've heard, we know that praise and rejoice, rejoicing is the enemy of anxiety and fear. And yet we do have so much to be anxious about. Loved ones that are under threat of illness and death. Loved ones we've lost already. Jobs we've waited very, very long for and still aren't here yet. Relationships that seem unrecoverable. Father, there's so much to be anxious about. Maybe even next month's check, how we're going to pay for bills, how we're going to pay for food. Father, we are anxious about these things and many more. And all that does is remind us still yet that we are not home, that we are waiting for it, that we are sick for it. It reminds us that we need you. And so once again, we need your word this morning to proclaim to us that we have you and that more importantly, you have us and you hold us in your hands and you know where we are. Would you proclaim that to our hearts this morning through your holy scriptures written by your spirit? Would you do these things for us? In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A little over five years ago, professional wildlife photographer John Concolosi, he posted a photograph that slowly began making the rounds on the internet. And then it became a bit of a sensation when National Geographic picked it up last May. I'll read for you John's story behind this now famous photograph. Of all the photographs that I've taken in over two decades as a professional wildlife photographer, there is one sequence that has attracted the most attention. It is a series of photographs of a European white stork trapped in a plastic bag, which I took in a dump in southern Spain. I spent several years photographing storks throughout much of the country. On one trip, I was lucky to stay at a friend's flat on the ocean. Instead of basking on the beach, as any right-minded person would do, I drove two hours inland every day to wallow in a putrid dump where storks congregate to feed on food scraps. At first, the odor was unbearable, but soon I got used to it. When I paused to eat, it somehow felt really unnatural to throw the trash on the ground, even though I was smack in the middle of one of the biggest dumps in Andalusia, a southern province in Spain. I had been working at the dump for about a week when I saw a hapless stork perched on a tire, trapped in a plastic bag. And my words this morning can't do the photograph justice. You can possibly Google it and look for it later. But it's a sad picture of a tall, beautiful stork with a plastic bag, the the type that you might use to put your produce inside when you're at the supermarket. And it's wrapped around the upper legs and the entire body and the wings, the neck, eyes, top of the head, only allowing the stork's beak to stick out 
which is why it can breathe and eat. And this stork is just sitting on top of a trash heap, looking for food of any kind. And every day the smells and the toxic chemicals, the decay, and even the bag it wears over itself all day, these things constantly remind this bird that the existence it is living is not what it was intended for. I mean, it can't even fly. And these revolting burdens, not just for the bird, but for we humans who see them, they remind us of our own obstacles, our own entrapment, our own messes that we make and can't escape, our own lack of freedom, our own sorrows and losses. They remind us that we aren't home. This isn't what our home was supposed to be. We're sick of this existence and sick with longing for our true home. At least this was how the rich man in the parable from Colin's sermon was supposed to feel. But he didn't. And that was the problem. And those that Jesus now turns his attention to in our passage this morning have a similar problem as that rich man, even though they're on the other end of the economic spectrum. You see, the challenge for those who are wealthy, and if you're in this room this morning, there's a very good chance you would be considered wealthy according to the world's standards you have a home or a furnished apartment and a car and a job and a stocked refrigerator, according to the world's standards, you're definitely in the upper class. The challenge for those who are wealthy is that they treat this current state of the earth, this home, as though it's already the real thing. And this can often show up as Apathy, as boredom, as neglect in our walks with Jesus. It shows up as a tenacious dedication to maintaining their comfort. Not just their comfortable houses and livelihoods, but their social comfort. Keeping distance and aloofness from others, because let's be honest, relationships, they're risky. And relationships are messy, and relationships mean letting others see you in a light that you'd rather not let others see you, which could mean that you might have to admit that you're needy and broken and weak, and you don't have everything figured out and under control. And this is very hard for rich people, especially because they're used to being seen as successful and strong and in control. And so the default for rich people is exactly what we saw in the passage that Colin preached last week. Devotion to comfort in all of its many dimensions. Material, financial, social. They want control over their comfort so that it doesn't go away. They're not thinking about a future home because they're distracted by the possibility of making this life their best home. 
The challenge for those who are poor is more highlighted in our passage this morning. Worry, concern, anxiety, even about life's essentials like clothing and shelter and food. And what poor people want is the ability to control these things. The ability to control their food supply, their clothing, their shelter, because they don't feel like they have enough. They want control over being able to meet their needs so that they don't have to worry. They're not thinking about a future home either because they are distracted by the worries of making ends meet in this life. And in this section of Luke, Jesus is saying to both groups that they have a very similar, deeper idol beneath their desires for material wealth. Rich and poor, they both want control. In Scripture, the Garden of Eden is is not a full picture of the creation God had made. It's not a picture of how the whole world looked at that point. In fact, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us there was a whole world outside the garden that needed taming. Rather, Eden is a picture of home. It's the center of worship where you go to be with God and meet with Him and walk with Him. It's the center of fertility, of relationships, and domestic and professional peace and tranquility. In the garden, we had food within within arm's reach in every direction. We worried for nothing. But we lost this freedom because we lusted for the only thing that we couldn't have. And since then, we've done nothing but worry. Our world came under a curse. Our bodies came under a curse. Our souls came under a curse. And we don't look to the true God to provide for us anymore. We look instead to ourselves. Even all the idols of every false religion of history point to this. We like idols because idols promise us control. They promise us deities that we can figure out and predict and control with our behavior. That's why we like them. Idols aren't about the idols. Idols are about us. The promise of freedom from fear and anxiety as long as we have the power and idols promise us the power The truth is, we long, we yearn for our first home. It's a longing in every human heart. But the truth also is that even if we were in that place this morning, we would fight over it. We would rape and pillage it. We would pollute it. We would turn it into hell in the end out of our worry and our anxiety and our fear. In verse 22, and again in verse 29, what does Jesus say? Do not be anxious about your life, verse 22. And don't go on being worried, verse 29. In verse 29, the word means don't be lifted up. Don't be puffed up. And we're used to hearing the phrase puffed up in relation to pride. But it means something different here. It's a different word. 
Rather, it's a graphic picture of hovering between hope and fear. Between heaven and earth. It's the picture of somebody who's suspended in midair. The picture is one of anxious, emotional insecurity and instability rather than groundedness and rootedness. It's a picture of a person controlled and driven by their emotions. Someone who makes decisions, rash decisions, out of emotional intensity. It's a person that knows nothing but a yearning for home. And Jesus has so much better for his disciples. And where does he go? He goes right for the issue at hand. He goes right for the issue we've been discussing up to this point. Our desire for control. Verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. Remember the barns from the parable? Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? You see what he does? He, he gives examples from nature of creatures we already know and already agree don't have a lot of control over what happens to them. Birds can't control when the rains will fall and bring worms up to the surface of the ground. Birds can't even control if or when trees that house their nests won't come down because of an axe. I'll tell you, last year we asked an arborist, we we asked a tree service to come and do something that was long overdue. It was such a wonderful day when they came into our backyard with their ladders and their equipment, and they went to town on a whole bunch of huge, large branches coming over from the neighbor's tree in the neighbor's yard over our fence, these branches laying on top of our roof. They'd been there since we had bought the house off of this big, awful walnut tree that I learned to hate. And I swear that tree had no off switch. This This trashy tree all year long, every season, it just dumped nuts and leaves and bark and branches like it knew what it was doing. I mean, I'm not kidding. You could use all manner of brooms and equipment. You could spend 30 minutes picking up after this tree in our backyard, clearing off the deck and the surrounding walkways. And I'm not not kidding. The next day, you would have to do it all over again. And it didn't even matter what month it was. I'm definitely an opponent of rapid deforestation, but I will tell you (laughs) that when the tree service arrived with their saws and their ropes, I enjoyed watching human beings exercise some serious dominion over the creation of my backyard. (laughs) And this this is how ancient peoples felt about ravens. In addition to being listed as unclean in all the Jewish law codes, everybody, even Gentile nations, considered them trash birds. A lot of people still do, honestly. 
And so Jesus picks out ravens in particular here for a reason. Jesus is saying here, God is mindful and takes care of trashy birds. You throw away your paper plates. God takes care of His. So don't you think He's going to take care of you? Jesus moves on to parts of the creation that have even less control. Consider the lilies, verse 27, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? The point is similar to that of the ravens. Food, clothing, God provides them for creatures that He cares less about than you. And creatures that have less control and power than you. And yet these creatures worry much less than you. And Jesus gives us something better than phantasms and false promises of control. His message here is, hey, cheer up. You've got more control than them. That's not what he's saying, is it? Instead, he gives us tastes of home. He gives us a promised kingdom. Jesus says in verse 30 that all the unbelieving nations and peoples, they desperately seek after the obtaining of food and clothing and wealth and bigger barns, but that we are instead to seek His kingdom knowing that our needs will be taken care of. Why? Because our relationship to God is different. Life is more than food and clothing. Life is never more than relationship to God. In fact, that is what life is. Relationship to Him. The unbelieving world knows God as their judge. But because of the cross of Jesus and His sacrifice for our sin, we know His Father as our Father. A Father more tender and caring and attentive to our needs than any earthly Father. In verse 31, Jesus tells us to keep seeking God's kingdom This means representing God on earth. It means seeking that His rule is demonstrated in the places where we live and walk, which means seeking the goodness of His righteousness and justice and mercy, that it might bring about blessing in our world. It means caring for others, as verse 33 makes clear, rather than for the self. As we proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he has come to do, it pulls back the curtain so that the rest of the world can see the God who holds it all together and orchestrates all things. And as we do this, God promises in no uncertain terms in verses 30 and 31 to provide for our basic needs. The strength of God's kingdom is not just doubted by our world. Its presence is even denied. But we have to ask ourselves, what kind of kingdom does our world offer instead? What's the alternative? 
One that is absolutely dependent on your ability to always marshal money and possessions and real estate and clothing and education and retirement. And if you fail in any of these things, your kingdom is very shaky and could even fall. It is all up to you. That's the kingdom the world offers instead. You better make it work. And indeed, we've seen hundreds and thousands of human kingdoms come and go, some of them immensely powerful. And in contrast to this, the strength of God's present kingdom in this world is a supernatural strength, unknown by this world. It is the strength of poor and rich alike possessing the confident security that God is in control, even when it looks like all hell's breaking loose. There is no stronger kingdom than one that can provide peace in the midst of storms. The self-made kingdoms of this world know nothing of this. Whatever glitter they may have glued to the walls. I want to take a little bit of time just to look at, to talk about two different ditches that lie on either side of the road when the church is thinking about its relationship to this world, its relationship to this present world. When we take a bird's eye view of Christian history, we can see these two general ditches on the side of the road, two ditches that we have to avoid when we think about how we ought to live in this world as it comes to our possessions on one side, we'll have what we might want to call the escapists, escapism. Escapism has generally depicted those groups of Christians who have felt most rejected by their culture. Sometimes this rejection is very real. In many parts of the world today, it's very real. In the form of awful persecution by the government or rival religious communities. And when you're in a place of constant threat or worried that you may lose your place of worship or your home or your family or even your life, you yearn for escape, for deliverance, for a coming kingdom of justice and peace. And the emphasis just by necessity starts to become not so much how to renew the world, but how to survive in it and how to persevere through it and how to hang on until the Lord returns or removes you from it. And in those circumstances, escapism is a little more understandable, isn't it? But this escapism can also characterize those who actually have spent a good deal of time enjoying the fruits of this world, only to find that no amount of earthly blessing can satisfy. In our time, it's common to find very affluent people seeking highly mystical forms of Christianity Bad theologies that offer the promise of immediate escape from pain and suffering through various spiritual techniques and special prayers and mantras and acts of faith. Their whole views of the end times, whole views of the end times that leave this world kind of burnt to a crisp while the faithful get to escape all the suffering. Views that nevertheless 
de-emphasize the importance of actually caring for this present world and the people who live in it. A spiritual escapism that can sometimes be very selfish in its theology and politics and the kind of lifestyle that it encourages. Of course, we can see on the other side of the road of how the church approaches its relationship to the world, the, the other ditch. And this looks like making peace with the world and its ruler making peace with the devil and his values and the world's values. It looks like lifestyles and orientations towards living in the world that are basically all about enjoying it to the fullest on the world's terms. Maybe religious observance on Sundays, perhaps, paying our dues, but fully buying into the world's thinking when it comes to materialism and consumerism and frantic, hectic schedules bent on achieving personal notoriety, sexual liberality, constant entertainment. We could keep adding to the list. But it all comes down to what the Apostle John called loving the world in chapter 2 of his first letter. And historically, when the church has approached the world this way, it has often enjoyed a large seat at the table of power and respectability in a given culture. The late medieval Catholic church is an example of this, but so is the Protestant church in America, being a more recent one, and even an ongoing one in places like our city. Making peace with this world can be dressed up to look like caring for the world, It can be dressed up to look like trying to be more relevant to the culture, being more winsome and peaceful, when in fact, oftentimes, it's just selfishness trying to avoid cultural rejection while being able to enjoy much of the world's wealth and positive strokes as a result. And so to say it more succinctly, the church has to avoid thinking that God hates this world, this home that he created for us, to avoid thinking that Jesus came basically just to give us a giant cosmic escape pod so that we could escape the coming fire, so that we can feel good about despising it and neglecting it. We have to avoid that. And then on the other side, the church has to avoid thinking that the current state of this world could ever be the home that God designed for us, because it's not. And so where does this leave us? It leaves us in the place of having to equally embrace the blessings and the burdens of homesickness. There's not a third point on your outline, but if there was, and there should be, it would say homesick, homesick Christians. I want to finish by describing for you what I think a homesick Christian properly looks like. Homesick Christians ought to be the least fearful, the least anxious, because they know that the present condition of this world is not our home. And thus, they're not afraid to lose what they have, and they're not afraid of never gaining what they're told they're supposed to have. Whatever they lose in this life of real value, they know is not lost forever. 
And so as a result, homesick Christians are the most bold and confident people because they know that their new, better home coming at recreation cannot be lost, it cannot be stolen from, it cannot be diminished. That it is made of eternal materials. It's a home that will truly last, as Jesus says in verse 33. Homesick Christians are the most empathetic people. They're able to enter the sufferings of others because they embrace the truth that the sufferings of our lives and the lives of others are real. Because we aren't living in the home that we're created for yet. And so we can call our homesickness what it is. A burden to be endured and to be persevered through. And other faith systems feel the pressure to explain suffering away, to pretend that it doesn't exist, to call it imaginary, to try to make others feel like they're less faithful when they're experiencing and showing the suffering of their homesickness. But homesick Christians don't do this. We have a realist approach when it comes to suffering. It's real because we're not where we're supposed to be yet. touch on Jesus' words in the first part of verse 33. Homesick Christians ought to be the most giving and sacrificial people because our economy is God's economy, which means that it's not the world's economy. Regardless of whatever spiritual mysticism Western people find to be the fad in the moment, just wait five minutes, it will change. The reality The reality of how Western people see the world is undeniably all around us and has been for quite some time. Western people in real, daily, living terms are oriented to the world as though materialism is true. As though life really is about money and physical possessions and physical pleasure. And God's word says to us from cover to cover that this is a lie. A lie that's not only shouted to us by the official teachings of our philosophers and our academics and our scientific practice, but a lie more subtly whispered to us through our daily experience of technologies we use and comforts that we enjoy. But if we believe God and His Son, our view of what is truly valuable, of what will truly last, of what is truly weighty and heavy and full of glory, it all changes. And this ought to make us the most sacrificial and the most giving, the most willing to part with financial and material possessions, the most keen and most insightful long-term investors the world has ever known. And finally, homesick Christians... Homesick Christians are the most joyful. Homesick Christians are the most joyful because the tastes of home we are given in this life look and feel like worship. And they actually are worship. And people of worship are people of joy. 
And they're people of joy, not because they have to be, they just are. Every tasty meal, every minute spent on a beach, every spell-binding story, every hug from a loved one, every moment of intimacy between a husband and a wife, every victory on the ball field, every note of encouragement, every visit from a friend is a taste of home. And it's not just a reminder, but it is the actual reality of a God who sustains every moving cell of his creation, standing behind every moment, not as a silent listener, but as a participating narrator. And so each and every one of these moments ought to orient our hearts and our longings and our thoughts Godward resulting in praise, resulting in thankfulness, resulting in quiet moments of just enjoying His presence. All of which is just simply another way of saying worship. We are a homesick people, but our tastes of home are the most wonderful because they are more than merely memories of what we lost in Eden. And they are more than just foretastes of what we will have in the new creation. Our tastes of home are the glories and the presence of God himself given in small and yet real doses right now. Our tastes of home are meant to give us more than simply a longing for changed circumstances, more than simply a longing for unending comfort and a longing for no more pain like the Israelites from Jeremiah 31 that we heard earlier in our reading, our tastes of home are meant to give us a longing for the true home, the true city and Mount Zion, the true temple himself. Our deepest longings are not just for a place, but for a living being who is love himself. And through his son, Jesus, may you believe And in believing, may you be delivered from all your anxiety and fear. And may your deepest treasure become the longing for his presence. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.